delocalization, you know, is uh, is a larger trend, one that not just the Chinese are, are pushing. So, um, and, you know, in the in the earlier discussion about um, you know Section 230 and and uh, the platforms moderating content. You know, the world is, is just looking a lot more like China these days. And, um, you know, a lot of things that the Chinese do are now not that different than, than what people in the West want to do and clearly is a model for lots of de developing countries. Episode 258 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And uh, we're talking for ourselves, not for our spouses, uh, not for our clients, not for our uh, organizations, um, uh, not for our schools. Uh, uh, we've got a great panel for the News Roundup. Uh, Matthew Hyman from the National Security Institute, formerly with the Justice Department, National Security Division. Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, uh, also formerly with the Justice Department uh, uh, and uh, one of the hosts of Culver Partners Rule of Law podcast, which if you aren't listening to, uh, you should be. Uh, uh, we've got Nick Weaver. Um, uh, we always love to have Nick on, uh, who uh, is uh, deep and met much of the technology that we'll be talking about. He's a senior researcher at uh, Berkeley uh, in computer science. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and, and DHS the host and chief provocateur in the program. We're also going to be interviewing, uh, um, when we finish up the news roundup, uh, uh, Adam Sigal, uh, the Ira A. Lippman Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security and Director of the Council on Foreign Relations Digital and Cyberspace Policy Program. Uh, Adam, welcome. Uh, glad to be a part. And uh, Adam, we're going to... Invite you to jump in on the news roundup uh, as well, since uh, we're bound to cover some topics that uh, you've studied pretty carefully as well. Uh, uh, but let me uh, uh, jump right in because I think we can probably put a fork in the the rationale behind Section 230 immunity. Uh, Section 230 immunity said uh, we can't expect uh, uh, these online forums to police what everybody says, uh, so we have to give them an immunity uh, as uh, from liability uh, for what other people say. Unless they say it themselves, uh, uh, there's no problem. And if they want to block people, they can't be sued for that either. So we're just going to make them a kind of um, Switzerland uh, uh, for speech. They can't get in trouble either for editing or uh, not editing uh, uh, their users. Um, that was part of the 1990, I think, uh, four or so uh, uh, legislation. The only piece of the legislation that actually survived, it was it was meant to uh, regulate uh, uh, Internet speech that would be um, problematic for kids to see. Uh, the Supreme Court struck it down and they severed this provision, which has lingered on as basically the half of the deal that um, uh, Silicon Valley demanded for uh, getting out of the way of the uh, um, uh, child-friendly legislation. They got to keep their half, uh, and the rest went down. Uh, all of that um, is feeling like some of the most dated uh, uh, disco uh, uh, from the 90s, uh, um, uh, because Everybody and his brother and particularly um, democratic nations are starting to regulate speech uh, to demand that these online forums 
knockout speech that is considered harmful or right wing or provocative or racist or what have you. Uh, um, a, and uh, there's like a long list of speech that uh, is going to be uh, banned or controlled by uh, law in a host of countries, the UK, Australia, etc. Uh, Nick has a theory that all that the, the original sin here was, um, at least at YouTube, their effort to um, increase engagement and that the effort to increase engagement at uh, YouTube and probably elsewhere is what has produced a string of ever more nasty content online. Nick, uh, what's your theory on this? So... YouTube has prized engagement over all others, and many people have pointed out externally, and now it turns out internally, that this does create problems when you only optimize for this. So, and they're not the only ones. Isn't that? Is, it's true of, yeah. of, of uh, Facebook is all Facebook. about engagement, right? Yes, and the problem is, is engagement and radicalization go hand in hand. So if somebody looks for vegetarian cuisine, you lead him down a militant vegan rat hole. If somebody's running, you lead them towards ultramarathons. If somebody is a rectal cranial inversion case white dude, you lead him down this white nationalism road. And so you have these externalities basically with the engagement model. The engagement model produces radicalization because radicalization is engaging. And truth be told, YouTube behaved the way I'd expect them to behave. It's an externality that the cost of the radicalization is not borne by YouTube. And so they are perfectly happy to keep their recommendation engine in such a way that it leads people down these rabbit holes, especially because they get huge pushback whenever they cease recommending somebody. They don't even have to remove somebody from the platform to get heat. All they have to do is stop recommending them. And so as a consequence, there have been these externalities. And unfortunately for YouTube, it got to the point where now everybody is going, hey, we can leap onto this and use this as an excuse to start regulating these platforms. And we're going to see a whole bunch of them in these uh, coming sections. So we can look forward to uh, the UK uh, banning uh, vegan extremism? <sighs> I wish. Um, <laughs> given that I'm a member of the real PETA, people eating tasty animals. <laughs> Okay, you're going to get podcast ban now in the UK. I, so I, I'm not completely convinced that that you're right about this. Uh, I, I I understand the the model, uh, and I think it's true that people do engage with stuff that seems to be telling them something that. Uh, They've always suspected, but didn't know uh, it, uh, was true, and and that is a uh, a recipe for extremist content. Uh, uh, but it's also a recipe for telling people things that they didn't actually know before right? uh, that uh, mainstream media didn't want to tell them. Uh, and so uh, it's a it's a little awkward to say. Well, what we, what we want to do is ban models that uh, tell people things they didn't know before. Well, the thing is, is I don't think they're talking about models 
of what people didn't know before. It's models that people will be interested in. And this directly creates things like QAnon, the rise of the flat earthers are back, believe it or not. And I don't know of a good answer to this problem, but it does seem that Yahoo or sorry, YouTube was willfully ignorant of the effects, even when warned by line engineers. And this has become the excuse for all those who want to regulate now. Well, so who what does want to regulate? Matthew, uh, what's the latest uh, on uh, uh, respectable governments that have uh, decided to, to jump you know, off the deep end? Well, uh, we have the UK. They've issued a white paper. Uh, which will likely lead the legislation in the parliament, uh, saying that uh, they want to establish a duty of care uh, and they want that to be policed by an independent regulator for online content. And that was largely, you know, in all of these, well, in a lot of these cases, they're borne by local crises. So the UK one seems to be driven by a very sad story of a young girl that accessed content on Instagram talking about self-harm and suicide. And then, in fact, Committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And so her father has been a very effective advocate for saying how awful this is that young children can access this. And so the UK is now legislating or on their way. In Australia, they've passed a very broad, uh, ill-defined law about online content and particularly live streaming in the wake of the Christchurch massacre. In Singapore, which is not exactly a bastion of free speech, political openness, um, they're going down the same path of uh, holding uh, the YouTubes and the Facebooks of the world liable and uh, shutting down free speech. So, I mean, this is, you know, oh, it's uh, totally respectable now. Right. It's it's totally respectable. The floodgates are open. Uh, and I would expect to see, you know, more and more countries following suit. And, uh, you know, I think coming back to what Nick was talking about, when you hear Mark Zuckerberg saying we need more regulation, um, it's a classic case of be careful what you wish for and what. Well, so, he's, he's 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 trying to preemptively surrender and only surrender so much, right? Right. He's saying I want global standards. Uh, the the world is saying we don't operate globally. We operate as sovereigns, as countries, and we're going to regulate what we think is best for our people. I, I, I also should say that it strikes me that Mr. Zuckerberg has engaged in some sort of a weird judo. In which, uh, you know, Facebook's own incompetence, particularly on managing privacy issues for its customers, is then converted into this reason well, for regulating yeah, everybody to be regulated. We can't manage it. We need regulation. And if you gave us regulation, then we'd start managing. Well, I, you know, he he is in a odd spot, uh, as as are some of these other uh, Silicon Valley platforms. Um, people yell at them all the time for content. Uh, and then as they start to crack down on content, uh, since they have a, a, a pretty heavy lefty bias, uh, it's easier to crack down on stuff that uh, comes from the right than stuff that comes from the left. And then they get criticized for that. Uh, and uh, people threaten to take away their 230 immunity, which, uh, you know, probably um, is at risk uh, uh from reality, if nothing, if not from legislators. Um, uh, so the idea of saying, you know, I would like somebody else to tell me what to take down is pretty attractive, right? uh, um, although it is a recipe for government uh, uh, censorship. And, you know, this is 
I'm quite astonished how little attention is paid to the idea that essentially every government in the world will be telling Americans what they can't say because that's that's where this ends. Uh, uh, All this talk is the standard is, is it harmful content? Well, you know, uh, I think that... uh, um, practically anywhere in the world, the Republican Party platform is considered harmful content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, but I also think it it gets down to um, you know what is fair game in your particular country. So in a sense, we're reverting back to where we were before the internet. So you could write and publish certain things in a U.S. newspaper that you couldn't in the U.K. because right. of their def- defamation rules, and you certainly couldn't in Singapore. And, you know, I've got friends who say they get The Economist magazine with half of it chopped out. Yes, that's right. Um, so I, I think what we're finding is that the Internet is going to reflect uh, the way media and idea dissemination worked 40 years ago rather than being this open free-for-all that everyone gets everything anywhere So in the world. maybe, or maybe the, we, we end up with a, um, an Internet for the West that doesn't meet U.S. Yeah. Uh, standards uh, for free speech, but meets a kind of um, Aussie-UK standard, yeah. uh, 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 which is considerably less freewheeling than ours would be. That's exactly where I think it's going. I mean, you know, again, if you looked 40 years ago, the New York Times would have published things that the Times of London would never publish about celebrities or public figures uh, because the different approach to defamation. Yeah. So what's interesting and where this could come up uh, is uh, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement uh, actually, if anything, strengthens and certainly writes Section 230 into an international agreement that will be hard to change without getting Canada and Mexico's approval, even though I can't believe they care at all about uh, uh, the protection of Silicon Valley. Um, And that's pending uh, in, uh, in Congress now. The Democrats, of course, are inclined to vote against it anyway. I think this puts it at risk for conservative uh, uh, senators as well, who, who may say, you know, uh, these guys are abusing us, and then they raise two thirty as an uh, uh, as an immunity when we say that you're uh, when say Devin Nunes uh, sues Twitter. Um, it, it wouldn't take much for that to become an issue that prevents the uh, the agreement from moving forward, since the enthusiasm for that agreement has always been pretty contained. Yeah, I think uh, lukewarm is about right. And so when you've got opposite ends of the spectrum shooting at it and the people in the middle don't really seem to want to carry the water, um, you can see where it might go. Speaking of uh, being in the middle and getting shot at, the UAE and Qatar are shooting at each other. And uh, it looks like former NSA uh, uh, employees are uh, going to be the losers. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, can you tell us about this uh, uh, Chris Bing and Joel Sheckman story from Reuters? Yeah, I know you've you've, uh, had it on previous episodes. Um, Basically, the UAE went out and um, hired a contracting firm in Maryland uh, to help them build up their surveillance capabilities. That firm employed a number of former U.S. intelligence community uh, employees, including some former NSA employees. 
it uh, the the story really kicks into high gear uh, when this this dispute between Qatar and UAE kicked off in the summer of 2017, and this latest story focuses on in pretty great detail on who they were targeting um, as part of this this effort to uncover connections between Qatar and the um, the media and ultimately the Muslim Brotherhood to try to um, basically um, throw mud at, at Qatar. And, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things, I guess, to me in this, in this entire story is there's been quite a bit of focus recently on, on the extent that these contractors are, are regulated when they come out of government and offer these types of services, particularly to foreign governments like the UAE. And, you know, though there aren't many rules on that front, there are pretty um, significant restrictions on the underlying activity, namely, you know, things like wiretapping, hacking into devices, uh, and use of classified or exposure of classified information that, um, you know, some of these techniques may be considered classified information. And, and it's also strikes me that a lot of the focus has been on, to the extent that we've talked about this in these stories, the focus has been on whether they've targeted Americans and potential U.S. interests. But the U.S. isn't the only country that has something to say here. And um, these former intelligence community employees probably engaged in a lot of this behavior in their previous life as government employees, but they did so under the auspices and the protection of the United States government. And according to these stories, they're they're targeting you know uh, British journalists and others um, who are located in in other countries who heavily regulate this activity as well. And so they've got to be very careful about um, what they're doing, the the extent to which they're creating legal liability for themselves, either in the United States or elsewhere. So I you know we we did have uh, 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 Bing and Checkman on to talk about this story when it first broke, and it was a big story. This sort of feels like a halfway between a victory lap and special pleading for journalists. Uh, um, They they make a big deal out of the fact that Al Jazeera, if you uh, consider them just an ordinary newslet outlet, was uh, hacked. Uh, And since I have always turned them down when they asked to interview me, or almost always, uh, uh, because I, I think they are in fact, uh, uh, not uh, a, a uh, uh, an unbiased uh, news outlet, uh, um, a, and the, apparently the the hacking was to try to find links between the government of Qatar and Al Jazeera. Um, it, it's hard to see how this would be a violation of any rules that would have been a priori imposed, uh, maybe it's special pleading to say, uh, uh, make sure that uh, in future you tell people, in addition to not uh, hacking um, uh, Americans, you don't hack journalists. But that strikes me as um, a policy effort rather than uh, a, a really important news story. But maybe, I, maybe I'm being too hard on, that, uh, on the, uh, uh, the reporters or on Al Jazeera. No, I, th- I think that's that's a fair critique. I mean, to me, there's not a great deal new in this story, other than as you said, who the targets were, and and with a spe- special focus on the journalists who were targeted. Um, but I do think these these um, types of concerns tend to heighten the risk 
for people who are targeting them, that the governments who are able to to take action to try to crack down on this do. And so, uh, again, it's not just the Americans, but potentially the Brits or others. Um, and it, it all depends on not just the nationality, but the location of these individuals at the time this this hacking was going on. And it may trigger legal restrictions in some of these places. And having a, a human rights or, or a, a journalism angle to this, I think, potentially increases the pressure on these governments to step in and do something about it. Could be. And, and you know, if you're Cutter, you could uh, you could imagine going to Interpol with a red notice on all of these guys saying they, they violated Cutter law. Uh, we want them arrested. Uh, and that would be awkward for everybody concerned. Yeah, speaking of awkward, Cepheus uh, uh, strikes again, and it says it it has told a U.S. Uh, startup, relatively new startup, uh, uh, that the money it's already taken and the technology it's already gotten from a Chinese company is um, inconsistent with U.S. national security, and they're going to have to basically be sold off. Nate. Yeah, this is uh, the company is the U.S. based company is called Patients Like Me, and it, it basically is what it sounds like. It's a U.S. Uh, company that offers an online service designed to help people locate others with similar medical conditions. Um, they raised about 100 million dollars in 2017. Uh, a majority of that stake came from a Chinese company. Cifius got wind of this, it seems like, last year and started inquiring. And is now forcing them to to sell uh, the Chinese interest. And it, you know, so I guess first off, if you know people sitting around with tens of millions of dollars in their pocket who might be interested, um, there 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 may be a, a seller. Yeah, available. maybe. Although this this kind of when you look at the, at the the company, they've been struggling along, uh, and uh, I wonder if they really were sort of running out of money, and then the Chinese showed up with new technology and more money. Uh, uh, so this, this it, it may not be the world's best uh, investment. No. Um, but, you know, look, I think there are a couple of things going on here. One is the much talked about crackdown on Chinese investment in the U.S. Um, in a number of ways. And and this, um, you know, forced divestment, including of small companies, is, is a new front in that, seemingly. I, I think another thing that will be interesting to see how this, this plays out uh, over the long term, particularly if it extends beyond China, is the expansion of the potential types of national security concerns that are raised with foreign investments in the U.S., particularly yeah. in the tech industry. You're seeing the government take a much broader uh, perspective on on the types of products and services and underlying technologies that could pose some risk to U.S. national security. And, uh, a similar issue came up, I think it was last week, with the 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 uh, potential acquisition of the dating app grinder. And so you're seeing this pop up in a number of different contexts that I think are, are new and unique, where we just didn't see that um, uh, a number of years ago. So, this is, this is, I think this is the U.S. version of GDPR. We're just not going to let data about Americans, which, you know, we, we would be comfortable in, seeing in the hands of advertisers, um, end up in the hands of companies that are likely to share it with 
the Chinese government uh, or the Russian government for that matter. Um, and it's a it's a uniquely American take on this because it has the national security element uh, to it. Uh, but I, I think it's deeply enough felt in the U.S. government that we're just going to impose it on the rest of the world. You can't you can't export this data sooner or later. That's where we're going to end up, uh, because otherwise the obvious method to gather this information is instead of buying a company, you you just take technology that's already being used in China and bring it to the United States and start uh, making it available for free. Uh, and you're going to get a lot of information. I, 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 I've, I've told people, you know, uh, there are plenty of Chinese companies that now have location data on me every time I use one of those free scooters, or not free, but uh, cheap scooters. Uh, um, uh, and, you know, uh, that's uh, Americans are not going to protect themselves, and the government's going to step in and, and prevent that data from, from leaving the U.S. But they haven't quite gotten that far. But when they say you've got to divest a company, that's pretty serious. It, it really casts a pall on all future investment. And then comes the question, are you going to say you, you, you can't invest, but you can just sell products that collect that information. My guess is that's not going to happen. Yeah, I think you might be right. Something else that uh, at least the NGOs, EFF and ACLU and all that that crowd really want to make sure doesn't happen. I'm not sure they're going to win this fight, but they are putting up a good one is uh, uh, facial recognition. There is a major effort on the part of uh, uh, NGOs to make fe facial recognition technology toxic. Uh, uh, and they've been picking on Amazon for their recognition software. Uh, uh, Nick, do you think they can do it? They're going to try because, truth be told, the software is toxic because it really doesn't work in the way that people want it to. To begin with, it's all based around machine learning. And what machine learning really is, is teach a computer to be a dumb pattern matcher where we don't actually know what patterns it's matching. So, for example, you train a recognizer to tell dogs from wolves, and it ends up being very good at recognizing forest and snow because that's what the recognizer ended up learning. Mm -hmm. And so when applied to face recognition, there are huge biases that are turning up. It's nowhere near as good with black faces as white faces. It's worse on women than men. We don't know whether this is biases in the training set or if there actually might be technical or cultural features or some other aspects that are resulting in these biases. And we can't because these systems are designed as unknowable black boxes. The other problem is, is how people want to use face recognition. They want to use it to do unknown face match against the universe. And even if you had a very low error rate, you're going to have a huge number of errors this way, just simply due to the large, large numbers of Every match but one is going to be false. So if your false positive rate is really, really low, you're still going to have huge numbers of mismatches. So well, now, you know, let me stop problems. you. Let me stop you there, Nick. So what? You start with a with a, an entire stadium full of people, and you believe there's a terrorist there, and uh, you run facial recognition on everybody in the stadium, and it, you you get it down to 
100 people. So you've got 99 false positives. But if the if one of them turns out to be the terrorist, you have dramatically reduced your workload. Except the problem is, is you do that on every stadium. And now every stadium, you have a thousand or a hundred false positives. Well, then it doesn't that the, the question is, what's the consequence of being false positively identified? If it is that somebody comes up to you and says, can I see your ID, sir? It's not the end of the world. Well, it depends. If you ask a black man that, it actually might be more fraught than a old white dude. And what the activists are keying in on is that this will not exist in isolation. This will be used in these systems where false interactions can have potentially yeah, negative can. consequences. Yeah, no, they That's right. You, 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 you obviously want to be cautious about how you reduce your uh, uh, population of candidates. Uh, but in many cases, the, the, the consequence is just that somebody – it might just be that somebody says, uh, well, let's check his, uh, um, uh, his license plate too. Uh, and now, now that we've got a smaller group of people, we can look for them getting into cars and see what their license plates are, and that will tell us uh, a whole bunch of stuff about their identities. Uh, and, and, and in fact, that is actually how you make this type of stuff work at scale if you want to create a, a Chinese-level, fully observed system, is yet you do these cheats that – Face recognition of one versus everybody in the world is really hard. Face recognition of one versus the few people in the household likely to use the car with this license plate is really easy. Yeah, and and valuable. So uh, it it does seem to me that uh, this is a a phony high standard being set by the NGOs to say, if it isn't perfect, it's outrageously wrong and biased too. And, you know, I'm quite confident that there are all kinds of problems that people who who suffer from uh, uh, skin diseases are also hard to identify. Uh, uh, But the fact that it reduces by... 90 percent the uh, number of people you have to uh, take into account as you're trying to locate somebody strikes me as valuable, even though 10 percent is an unacceptably high number if we were punishing them all. The thing is, is the base rate is such that it actually ends up being much worse. And there is a significant risk that people will be tagged improperly. And finally, it's just that people are kind of worried about this Orwellian vision of tracking everybody everywhere all the time. So this is the usual... Um, this is because I, it's know, easier. Th- th- this is the usual BS from the privacy groups. They try to find a new technology. They try to find something wrong with it. And they try to say, oh my God, it's the end of the world. You'll hate the world that this technology makes possible. They paint the worst possible account. Then they demand regulation to prevent anything bad from happening from this and to discourage the use of the technology. That's what we're in. We're in the kind of Orwellian uh, uh, future, scare people with the technology phase. And it's working. I guess Texas and Illinois and Washington are uh, either have or are working on uh, biometric uh, uh, limitations. I, I'm having trouble seeing particular damage from collecting that information. But I, we will see whether uh, whether there's much pushback. The problem is 
I don't think a lot of people are making much money off of this. So there's no lobby against the uh, scaremongers on the uh, EFF. Oh, I could make a lot of money this way, but probably <laughs> the biggest market would be Western China. <laughs> I, I don't think the Chinese are good. You, know, you, you go to the Chinese and say, oh, my God, it's an Orwellian future. And they say, great. <laughs> OK, Kaspersky is still litigating the ban. They have produced, Nate, a uh, an opinion that says uh, the government has got us wrong and they've got the Russian government wrong. And so they should undo the ban. Uh, any, is that persuasive at all? I mean, uh, an appeal to Russian law to say you misunderstood Russian law and, and because Russian law doesn't allow the, Chi the, the Russian government, uh, the, the authority you thought um, you should get rid of the, uh, the ban on Kaspersky and government uh, purchases? No, but you do have to give them maybe a B plus or A minus for effort on this one. They're, they're not giving up. They're not going to go away easily. And I think there are two problems with this. The first is it's pretty clear this is not the only justification for the ban. So they're just addressing one of, of multiple issues that, that led to it. And the second is, you know, I, I do not consider Russia to be a country that is well known for its strict adherence to the black letter law. And, you know, I think that the government, the Department of Homeland Security in this case will be pretty, um, it'll be pretty easy for them to dismiss this and explain that just because Russian law says one thing or another doesn't mean that's how the government or the private sector there will actually behave. And and so I, I don't expect this to carry much weight, but it, it was worth a try. Yeah, it was, it, it, good lawyering, uh, uh, you know, nice try. You still fail. Last uh, story I want to talk about uh, was suggested by Gus Coldavella, who used to be uh, DHS's general counsel. Uh, uh, and it is a fascinating story uh, uh, about ICE and uh, left-wing politics in Washington uh, state. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, what happened here? So for about three years, ICE would pay a daily visit to about six Motel 6 hotels uh, in Washington State. They're apparently also doing this in Arizona. And they would ask for a dump of uh, names and information of all the guests staying in the hotel that day. And um, newspapers caught wind of it, reported the story. This prompted the Washington State Attorney General to file a lawsuit arguing that uh, this violates Washington State privacy law and the Consumer Protection Act. And ultimately, Motel 6 settled for about $12 million, and presumably each of its guests during this time period are going to receive some if they ask, fraction if they of ask a penny for, the money. Right. Uh, for this. Otherwise, it goes to plaintiff's counsel's favorite charity or uh, alumni group. Cypray. <laughs> exactly. Where they'll <laughs> or, be honored. Or may, maybe the attorney general of Washington will keep it and spend it on uh, causes he thinks are appropriate. Perhaps a new limousine and some outrider motorcycles. <laughs> and so I think the dynamic here is interesting, as you alluded to, Stuart, which is my own sense is if this was activity being uh, driven by the FBI, who's trying to break up a pedophile ring and they believe they routinely stay at these hotels, I doubt the Washington State Attorney General would have any interest in pursuing this. But I think because because it's ICE, it, because it, it, it's it, ICE it's and you have the intersection of privacy and the great immigration debate and a lot of very, you know, and a few sad stories apparently that come out of this of some people being deported because they were here illegally. Um, it's great fodder for 
someone who's likely wanting to run for governor or other office somewhere down the road and has got his bona fides as being opposed to the uh, so, ICE operation. So, so that's, you know, that's the story. So I, the, uh, what I'm puzzled by is uh, there was uh, an Arizona case the Supreme Court decided in which Arizona tried to say, because we believe that federal law, immigration law should be enforced, we are going to refer uh, uh, people that we pick up to the government to check to see whether they're here illegally, or we will impose sanctions that uh, add to the sanctions that uh, the U.S., uh, that the federal government imposes. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that, Arizona. You can't supplement and reinforce federal immigration law because immigration law is exactly what the federal government says it is, not a jot more, not a uh, tittle less. Uh, in this case, it's clear that Motel 6 is being punished to the tune of $12 million for having done something that immigration authorities asked them to do. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it's the state's overturning or at least uh, contradicting federal immigration policy. I'm surprised that the federal government didn't intervene in this lawsuit to say, what the hell? Uh, I, this, is, this is our policy. You don't get to tell people not to conform to our policy. Yeah. I, I, you know, the policy decision of why the federal government didn't intervene, you know, I, I Maybe don't Maybe they know. didn't know about it. I, I think they may not have known about it. It may have been small bones or small potatoes. You know, as if, far you're, as if you're Motel 6, you probably, you've already sucked it up you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get bad publicity out of this yeah. you don't want any more publicity yeah and i think this is another useful reminder to anyone uh that is in-house with a business or advising a business that don't hand over anything without a court order which is where this winds up that they, they, clearly that's the easiest approach yep. uh, there is no um restriction on handing over this information they can volunteer mm -hmm. it uh, yeah. if they want uh, um and it's hard to say that uh uh, doing that for law enforcement is a violation of, especially when it's federal law enforcement, that's a violation of state privacy law. But, uh, you know, just because you've got a theoretical defense doesn't mean that you want to litigate it forever. Exactly. And the other thing that I always worry about when when it all comes down to you've got to get a court order before anything can happen, you know, um, time is of the essence in certain national security situations and waiting around for a court order uh, while the clock is ticking, can sometimes be very dangerous. And so I, I fear that we're getting so far out on a limb that there will come a crisis one day while we wait for the court order. The real disaster unfurls because the information wasn't handed across promptly enough. Yeah, it, 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 it certainly could happen. Uh, and probably the federal government has set its procedures up so that they can move pretty fast. But I am not as sure that uh, local law enforcement will be able to adapt to these new rules as fast as uh, the federal government can. Okay, Adam Segal. Adam is the uh, Ira Littman Chair in Emerging Technologies and National Security and the Director of Cyberspace Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. He writes a lot about uh, uh, China, and so I've asked him to come on here and talk a little bit about uh, U.S.-China relationships uh, and uh, where they're going. Uh, particularly, I think we might as well start with a discussion of uh, the U.S.-China trade talks, uh, uh, where we are coming down to the wire, maybe. Uh, uh, and let me just ask, uh, Adam, uh, uh, where do you think the, uh, the U.S.-China trade talks are at this point in their uh, back and forth? 
Yeah, I mean, we we do seem to be coming to an end. Um, I think the big question is going to be, is it an end that is going to address the big structural problems? uh, Or is it it going to allow China to do some things on the margin, the president declare a victory over, you know, big sales of soybeans, and we're all back here five years from now? Yeah, so the usual approach the Chinese have taken to a lot of these uh, uh, trade deals when they have a little bit of conflict with uh, one jurisdiction or another is just to say, we'll write you a big check for a bunch of stuff that doesn't really threaten any of our industries, you know, soybeans uh, uh, or uh, Boeing airplanes. Um, And that clearly was what they wanted to do at the start of this process. Uh, Do you think the U.S. government is going to hang tough on, uh, on that or are they likely to say, fine, that's what's on offer, we'll take it? I mean, I th- I think so. I mean, there's certainly parts of the administration, in particular, uh, you know, USDR uh, Leitziger and and Peter Navarro, who uh, don't want to give up and and you know really got into this battle to to change and create structural changes. I don't think anyone knows, quite honestly, what the president is going to do and if he's going to declare a victory or not. You know, they, oh, I think the, we know he's going to declare a victory. Yes, well, <laughs> well, declare a victory without getting those things. I think. What we hear from some of the negotiations last week about um, some of the issues that are important to the tech companies, uh, the cybersecurity law, data localization, cloud access, um, those suggest that there are you know structural issues on the table. Um, but my feeling is we will get you know the Chinese saying yes, we're going to make these changes, and not a lot of clear metrics that follow the Chinese down, Chinese down that road. And, so that and, that is kind of the te- that is the problem with these um, deals. If they buy a whole bunch of soybeans and Boeing jets, you can measure what they did, and it has some impact on the uh, uh, the, bal- uh, the uh, balance of trade. Uh, but it feels very temporary and like you know a uh, a buck tossed to a beggar on the way to the limo. But if you hold out for structural change, you have to really know what structural changes will work, and you have to you have to write rules that make it impossible for very clever Chinese government officials to kind of tweak their existing rules in a way you didn't anticipate and get the same benefit that they were getting from the measures that you uh, got them to agree to abandon. Yeah, I mean, you can you can take the issue of forced uh, forced uh, technology transfer, right? The U.S. and other Western companies have complained that uh, as part of the deal for access to the Chinese market, you had to turn over uh, technology and and you had to be part of a, a joint venture or some other type of legal measure that that turned over the technology. And the Chinese have said, well, the, the, there is no requirement for that, but we will pass a law saying that uh, there are no forced technology transfers, and, th- and that should address the issue. But that's really not going to address the fact that we know that it's, this has happened, and, and it often happens at the local or the provincial level where the, the government official says, yeah, we're, we're more than willing to consider your deal, but you should also know that there are three other companies behind you in line who are also wanting to make this deal, and they've offered us you know, X, Y, and Z and sharing technology. And so, you know, what are you going to do about it? So that that is going to be very hard to 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 get a sense of if that stopped, um, because companies generally don't want to talk about it. They don't want to be uh, come out and, and be identified as the one that's causing problems. And the Chinese will point to the law and say, look, we have now a law that says you can't do forced technology transfer. Yeah. So I, I one of the stories we covered a couple of weeks ago <laughs> said that uh, the chip companies in the U.S. had 
rejected or were deeply skeptical about a proposal that China say we're going to buy a whole bunch of U.S. chip technology, which sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, and the companies were were saying, you know, if they buy a bunch of chip technology, we'll probably have to end up building factories in China to meet that demand. Uh, and they will tweak the purchases so that we're back in a situation where they say, well, we have all these orders and we can give them to anybody who makes semiconductors. And this company is transferring a whole bunch of its technology. Uh, can you tell me why we shouldn't uh, buy their chips instead of yours so that you are almost empowering the government uh, by getting this promise to, to buy U.S. technology? You're empowering the government to force U.S. tech companies to bend to other Chinese government priorities. That's right. And, and, and you know, the chip uh, area is is one of China's top priorities now that, you know, one of the lessons that they've taken from the trade war and in particular the Commerce Department sanctions against ZTE is that the one of the tools that the U.S. has um, and one of the really important vulnerabilities that China has is, is chips. And so anything that you know, on one hand, gets them out of the trade war and makes it sound like they're buying more and, and addressing the bilateral trade deficit. And on the other hand, may help uh, move technology and manufacturing to China uh, is going to be a win for them. Yeah. So the current uh, approach of, of saying U.S. companies can't do business, say, with ZTE uh, because they uh, violated U.S. export control law, uh, while enormously effective, is, is creating an incentive to build a completely U.S. free supply chain uh, uh, from soup to nuts on uh, uh, the telecom uh, uh, side of the uh, of the industry, and I'm not sure we can do anything about it. We've created that incentive already, and they are surely uh, working very hard to ensure that in future. Uh, if um, they want to sell telecom uh, gear to the North Koreans or the Iranians, the U.S. has nothing to say about it. Yeah, I mean, that incentive, as you said, has been there for a while. I think that, that this is, has seriously accelerated it. And we saw after the ZTE announcement that all the all the big Chinese players, uh, ZT, uh, uh, excuse me, Tencent and Alibaba, Baidu, uh, Huawei, uh, all saying, well, we're going to invest uh, in developing our own chips so this doesn't happen again. Um, we, you know, we've seen as the U.S. strategy against Huawei has played out over uh, Europe, Huawei has gone to uh, its Japanese uh, and uh, Taiwanese suppliers and saying, we want you to do more production inside of uh, China so we're not susceptible to, to more U.S. sanctions. So I think we are moving towards um, where both sides think decoupling the supply chain addresses their security concerns. It's going to take a while. Uh, it's, these are not going to be easy things to do. Uh, and it's going to be expensive, but I think that is the trend. If we end up in a world where you have two supply chains that are mutually uh, um, exclusive, it, it, it's easy to see, you know, there's the U.S., there's China. Uh, where do other countries end up? My assumption is that at the end of the day, for all their grumbling and uh, condescension to the United States, the Europeans end up on the U.S. side of that because uh, they're more afraid of China. But where does India, where does Vietnam uh, end up uh, in a, if it has to choose to be on yeah. one side or the other of that uh, divide? 
Well, I, I think uh, most of them uh, go where it's cheapest. Um, you know, unless you have a specific security concern about the Chinese, so that might rule out the the Vietnamese. India kind of goes back and forth about its dependence on Chinese hardware. Often, you see, you know, raw and other parts of the Indian intelligence community saying we don't want to use it, but then quickly those voices get get battered down. But I think for most developing countries, especially those who are focused on uh, bridging the dig- digital divide and, and building on access, they're going to think, look, we're going to get spied on by the U.S. uh, or China or both. doesn't really mean that much to us, you know, if it's the Chinese or it's the Americans. And and we're really just concerned about price. Um, We saw this happen in Papua New Guinea when the U.S. and the Australians showed up and tried to convince them not to finish uh, underwater sea cable that uh, Huawei was building out. And basically, you know, one of the ministers from Papua New Guinea was quoted as saying, look, cyber espionage is a a problem for the big boys. Uh, We're really just... It's a first world problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We're going to figure out how we're going to do this on price and this is cheaper. And so I think a lot of the world is going to go, unless the U.S. can provide um, either some development assistance or some cheaper alternative, uh, it's going to go with what's cheapest. And so one of the other issues that's been raised and you touched on it is the cybersecurity law and the uh, uh, requirement to process data, keep Chinese data in China. That's been a worry for U.S. companies that do business over there. uh, And it's been both the companies that that provide uh, um, cloud services and the companies that use them. Do you see much in the way of change likely from China on that front? I I don't. I mean, one of the ideas on the cloud that was floated was that they could kind of be in some special economic zones, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I don't think really, you know, addresses the issue that, you know, AWS and Azure and, and Google are not are, are unlikely to be able to be compete on a, on a, on a national frame. Um, I think the, issue on the data localization and the equipment reviews uh, also are going to be um, not addressed full-heartedly. That, you know, the, one of the issues is how the Chinese define critical information infrastructure, and, and that is still not set in the law. Uh, some of the definitions that they floated have been incredibly broad, basically anything that could affect economic or national security. Others are, are more narrow and, and are more kind of in the traditional communications, uh, transportation kind of framework, but also still involve uh, information services and other things that could be could be pretty broad. So, you know, my, my sense of Chinese technology policy is always that, yeah, they may abandon certain uh, tools under pressure, but the ultimate goals, which are to reduce dependence on U.S. technology, Japanese technology, and European technologies won't change. So even if they make some marginal changes, the end goal is, is will remain the same and, and and U.S. companies will still find it very difficult to conduct those operations inside of China. And the U.S. isn't in a great position to say you've got to define critical infrastructure in a very clear and narrow way, um, because if we had defined it uh, uh, three, four weeks ago, we probably would not have included LGBTQ uh, dating sites. Uh, <laughs> no, or or Sony when you know when that when the when the attack first happened. Um, but yes, I think um, and data localization, you know, is. Uh, is a larger trend, one that not just the Chinese are, are pushing. So, um, and, you know, in the, in the earlier discussion about, um, you know, Section 230 and, and uh, 
the platforms moderating content. You know, the world is, is just looking a lot more like China these days. And, um, you know, a lot of things that the Chinese do are now not that different than, than what people in the West want to do and clearly is a model for lots of de developing countries. So what do you think? What are the odds that when Silicon Valley says, oh, we've got this terrible content problem, we're throwing AI at it, uh, that they're really saying to themselves, and if we perfect it, we can sell it to China? <laughs> well, certainly I think there are parts of uh, most of the companies that are thinking that. Uh, those parts are probably now, as we know, with, you know, Dragonfly that are hidden from the other uh, from the en <laughs> other engineers and other parts of the community. So, you know, my, my sense is uh, talking to the tech companies for all over all these years, is there always someone in business <laughs> development who thinks going to China will, will work out? Um, and I don't think they ever abandoned that idea. That idea. My I think more recently, the, the politics of it all are, all are so negative that they have shelved all those ideas, at least, you know, short term. So last uh, topic that I wanted to cover with you is the uh, famous Obama-Xi agreement uh, not to do commercial cyber espionage, uh, which looked like it was working for a while and, and was touted, uh, uh, not least by the Justice Department, uh, as a sign that their uh, name and shame indictments had uh, had a big impact. Uh, nobody seems to think that the Chinese have stuck to that, uh, uh, although I think they've kept the PLA out of it, but that may just be on grounds of competence. Um, uh, what's your sense of where the Chinese are and why we're back where we started? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think the, the the assumption now is that the agreement is has been has been broken. That we have seen a, a, an uptick of the attacks. Um, the targets are slightly different. We're seeing you know more attacks on uh, IT services and cloud providers, and so those attacks give the Chinese um, a lot more visibility uh, into into a, an, into a larger number of targets. There does seem to be, as you said, a kind of shift from the espionage from the PLA to the Ministry of State Security. Um, I, I think we're here, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. It's one of two reasons. One is that the Chinese were planning on reorganizing the cyber forces anyway. So we know that they created what were called the strategic support forces. They brought uh, cyber together with information warfare and psychological operations. And I think the idea was, let's get the PLA out of the cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property. Let's have them focus on war fighting and cyber operations, cyber conflict, and let's move that over to the Ministry of State Security. And so we're going to do that anyways. It's going to probably take us about a year to reorganize and get back to where we want to be. And Let's, let's get the political gain of signing this agreement. Um, let's get the pressure off from the Obama administration because it wasn't just the indictments that the Chinese didn't like, but the Obama administration was threatening uh, to use the executive order to sanction uh, companies that were benefiting from the theft. Um, and most probably most important was that you know this was Xi's first, first summit uh, uh, as president. And so they really needed that summit to go well. And so they decided, let's just take the the political win of signing the agreement while we already have a, a downturn plan for a year. I think that's probably what happened. The, the second argument, which, you know, doesn't, I think, roll out the first one is that they could could have decided that, you know, with the Trump administration waging what they see as a kind of containment strategy on technology, um, not ZTE and Huawei and the CFIUS reviews we talked about at the beginning of the show and export controls, student visa restrictions, that um, they were going to start using cyber-enabled theft to get the technologies that they need. 
So it could have been driven by a downturn in the U.S.-China relationship. So the, we were already using most of the sanctions that we would have used uh, if we caught them engaged in cyber espionage. So uh, they, they said, well, I've, I've, I've already doing the time. I might as well do the crime. Yeah, that, that they basically decided, well, if the U.S. has essentially declared a tech war with us, then we're going to do what we need to what we need to do. Is that how you see it? playing out? Is there any prospect that uh, all the other countries, uh, the G20 and uh, the UK, that uh, also have deals with China saying this is uh, off the table? Uh, is there any possibility that uh, those um, folks will work with the United States to say, no, there really need to be consequences here? I, I think so. I mean, we saw in the the December uh, 2018 indictments um, that that was followed by uh, attribution by the by the by the UK and, and Canada. So I th I do think there is a hope that um, the next set of either indictments or naming and shaming will be uh, even greater coordinated. I, that's what I hear the administration wants to do. You know, I, I don't know if it has any effect, um, you know, at this point. I think naming and shaming has pretty much run its course. I think the, the next step, and it's hard to imagine just because, the you know, as you said, the Trump administration is already engaged in so many other sanctions against the, uh, against Beijing right now. You know, the, the next step is, in fact, to use the executive order and to sanction specific companies or individuals who have benefited. Um, and I'm not sure if the Europeans would go along with that. And so that's where we'll uh, we'll end up. I th I suspect you're right. The Europeans have are always more worried about retaliation than the U.S. Uh, uh, is, uh, and uh, uh, in this case, um, that would argue for them saying, "Why don't you go have that fight?" Uh, <laughs> are there other events, papers, speeches that you're going to be giving soon that our audience ought to hear about? We, you know, we did a thing on um, the the indictments uh, at, at the beginning of the year um, on and kind of it's called the new old threat: how to respond to the return of uh, Chinese uh, cyber espionage. Um, and then, of course, I had the uh, the piece in Foreign Affairs on when China rules the web, so it looks at China's technology ambitions. And you you produce a weekly uh, summary of uh, interesting international uh, uh, tech news. Yeah, so Net Politics, which is uh, the the council's uh, uh, blog uh, on cyber and digital issues, um, every week has the Cyber Week in Review that try to summarize the the most important issues. All right, uh, that's Adam Segal, uh, the Ira Lippman Chair in Emerging Technologies. This is new. This title is new. Uh, you've been director of digital and cyberspace policy for a while, but I didn't know you had a named chair. I do. Well, I had a name chair before, but it was the Maurice R. Greenberg chair. So we, we, right. that, there was some shifting around of all of different chairs. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Adam, it's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, also, uh, uh, thanks to Matthew Hyman, uh, Nate Jones, and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 258 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We are eager to get uh, interview guests, and uh, if you suggest somebody who comes on the show, uh, we will send you a coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug. We're sending Adam his second uh, for his second appearance on the show. Uh, send those recommendations to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we also take 
recommendations for stories, as Gus Coldabella can testify. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter because now for two weeks in a row, I've actually um, uh, released the stories that we're thinking about covering. So you can react to those uh, or supplement them as you choose. Be sure to leave us reviews on iTunes and elsewhere. We're getting more and more. And we really do appreciate them. I haven't had a really entertainingly abusive one recently, but uh, uh, I'll be glad to read it if it uh, comes up. Uh, April 29, blockchain is taking over the podcast. I'm going to take the week off, uh, and uh, uh, our blockchain practice will uh, uh, interview and uh, discuss a whole bunch of uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency issues. Uh, for the show, the credits, uh, Christy Jorge is our producer. Doug Pickett's our audio engineer. Michael Beaver here in the studio with me is our assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, the host and chief provocateur for uh, the podcast. Please join us once again next week as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.